Hey guys, um, I'm Abigail, and I'm going to attempt to read the passage tonight. Um, this is from Judges 4, 1 through 24. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heroth Sheph Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidith, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I won't go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber's son, the Canaanite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away in the oak in Zamamim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had been gone to the Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herothsheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herothsheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the, Ken the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the, king the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. She opened up a skim of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes up and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went away softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you're seeing. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, for the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight we're going to talk about that, this story, what it means for us, and two particular things. I want to try to keep it simple. It's a long story. It's easy to stumble through it. It's a lot of place names, town names, people names that we're not familiar with. Um, but so I want to keep it simple. The two things we'll talk about is thinking about this God as our warrior 
a wounded warrior fighting on behalf of his people. Watch your warrior fight for you. And second, follow your warrior into battle. Those are really the two things I'd love for us to do tonight and love to be the outcome of tonight is for you to simply sit there and watch God fight for his people and then to follow him into that battle. Let me pray. Jesus, your people in all of these stories have such meager resources, silly resources, nowhere near a match for the needs of the moment, nowhere near the power to deliver in the ways that we need. And so, again tonight, we are in their shoes, and that's us. We are the powerless. We are the people with meager resources, and you're the rich one, and you're the warrior And you're the savior and the deliverer and the judge and the king. And so I look to you now, my friends look to you now with our hands outstretched asking, would you teach us? Would you come? Would you let us see you fight? Would you accomplish more with the meager resources I have than I would ever be able to? Would you do this because you love us and you love to do these things for us? Amen. Well, all of you were alive for this night. I don't know if you remember it. But it was September 11th, 2012. It's the 11th anniversary of 9-11. And on that night, about 10 o'clock p.m. in Benghazi, Libya, at the U.S. consulate, a group of about 150 armed militants had surrounded this smallish consulate compound. And they were heavily armed. They had truck-mounted artillery. They were well-trained. Obviously, they'd prepared this and planned this. And they began to launch an attack on this consulate building. Inside the building were a U.S. ambassador to Libya and a handful of security people and State Department people. So when this attack begins, the security people take everybody in the compound and they go to the safe room and they lock themselves inside of it. And at that point, they're thinking... We just need to wait this out until help comes. They can reestablish a perimeter, push the enemies back, and we'll get out of this. When they get into the safe room, they make their first call to a CIA paramilitary team that's stationed about five minutes up the road in a house. That's where they stay. So they call them and they say, we're surrounded. There's a hundred and something militants out there, heavily armed. They're firing at us. We can't do anything. We're hunkered down. Come, send help. So they say, okay. We've got to get our people together. We'll be there to help. 45 minutes or an hour goes by, and they call that paramilitary team again, and they say, get here now. The, the firing hasn't stopped. The shelling hasn't stopped. And around this time of the second call, the militants had come into the compound, and they couldn't find the Americans they were looking for. And so uh, what they did is they started lighting different buildings on fire. And they said, if we can't find them and kill them, we're going to smoke them out. And so they did that, which led to the third call from the ambassador to this CIA paramilitary base where they said this. We're not going to last much longer. Get down here. What's taking so long? And the ambassador and several aides would die soon after that call was made, even though a lot of help and a lot of firepower was just around the corner. They didn't know 
for some reason, they didn't know what was holding up the help. Could they not get to them? Would they not get to them? Why weren't they there? They were calling out for help and help was not coming. Now, this is a pretty intense scene. If you saw the movie 13 Hours, you've seen what I described. And I get it. Uh, I was thinking of those scenes in that movie when I was reading this passage. Not because our life is always that intense. None of you have probably been in a firefight like that. I haven't. You might know people who have. So our lives aren't that intense under that literal kind of fire or oncoming fire. But in a lot of ways, our lives are like this experience in a lot of other ways. We feel woefully outnumbered, outgunned, outmaneuvered by whatever enemies you're facing, whatever battles or struggles or temptations you're up against. They probably ambushed you. Maybe it came out of left field. There wasn't much warning. Uh, A lust came back. A temptation came back. You got a phone call. Your mom said something else. Your friend betrayed you. Your own desires are leading you astray again. Your own old bad habits are coming back. Intrusive, ambushing thoughts are coming back into your head. And you're surrounded. And you're getting lit up. And you're crying out for help. Maybe to people. And maybe they're hearing your calls, but help isn't coming in the way you thought or the way that it should be coming. Maybe you've prayed. Maybe you've called out to God. And you're wondering where his help is. And you feel hunkered down. outnumbered, outgunned, outwitted. For a lot of us, many handfuls of us in the room, this room tonight, your body is your biggest enemy, it feels like. Back pain and your sleepless nights, Crohn's disease and how it wreaks havoc and what would be a normal college experience or some other disorder or ailment, or you're just a person who gets sick a lot and you keep having to say no to stuff that you love. And it feels like every time you get a foot Back in the right direction, sickness or pain comes back. For some of us, your thoughts, that's where you fight your battles, in your head. Paranoia, anxiety, fear, obsessive thoughts, compulsive thoughts or actions. Those battles are ones you face every day and you feel outnumbered, outgunned, outmaneuvered by them. They feel very experienced and trained how to flank you and get past your defenses. And you feel like a brand new ROTC cadet. I don't even know what I'm doing here. How am I going to launch an assault back? Our fears. The MCAT is an insurmountable obstacle between you and your future, and it's terrifying you. Or some internship, or the fact that all of your buddies have a job, but you don't. You're not even getting interviews, and it just seems like a terrifying obstacle, a wall in between you and the future. And that's the enemy that you feel like you face every day, or your desires, your lusts. The inability to say no to things that you know are destroying you, addictive patterns, overeating, undereating, sexual addictions, checking your phone every two minutes, having to be entertained all the time. Whatever these things are, I know you have enemies. I know you fight battles, and you know I do if you know me. This is the stuff we talk about when we get together. The battles you're fighting, the struggles you're facing, the temptations you're launching an assault against or that are launching an assault against you. And just like last week, we threw in that little holy trinity of dysfunction and disintegration and darkness, the world, the flesh and the devil on top of all these other things. These forces arrayed against God, against his world, against you, no matter whether you believe him or not. 
no matter whether you see the world that way or not. These are the things that are up against us. So it leaves us calling out in these places, wondering, is help coming or am I fighting this alone? And I know if we took a poll in this room, do you feel alone in these battles? Almost all of us would say, yes, I feel alone in these battles. At best, you might say, I have a really good friend, a girl who gets me, a guy who will listen, who will help, who will call, who will ask. But I've said, do you feel alone from the Lord? from this God in these battles, I bet a lot of us would say yes. And that is why this story is recorded in our Bible. That is why this is here. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, I've alluded to this a few times already, but he says, whatever was written down in ages past was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is in your Bible to make you courageous. This is in your Bible to give you hope. This is in your Bible to stiffen your spine in the trenches, in the things you face, in the things you are up against. Very real enemies, struggles, temptations, battles, even if it's metaphorical gunfire coming at you. And in particular, this story is here because it's pulling back the curtains and it's allowing you to see God fighting for you. And it's, it's supposed to produce in you confidence. That's the desired outcome of, of this particular episode. Really, all of the book of Judges. It's supposed to produce a lack of confidence in yourself and an increasingly skyscraping confidence in this God, the Lord, the living God. Judges 4 uh, is what we're talking about tonight, but really Judges 4 and Judges 5, the following chapter, are all about the exact same thing. But one is a historical account, the other is poetry. It's a song. It's, it's known as Deborah's song. The whole chapter is Deborah after the deliverance that she's experienced through this, that all of God's people have experienced. He showed up. He heard the call. He responded in both expected ways and just mind-blowing ways that they never would have expected and it's just celebration and victory and parade and rejoicing and singing a new song. You're supposed to sing songs after this chapter. You're supposed to leave here with wind in your sails. And I don't know with, with specificity what you're going through right now. I think by this point in the week, maybe five or six of you I've sat down with this week. And I got different stuff I'm dealing with this week. So I don't know what your particular battlefield is right now, but think about it when you hear about this story. The first thing that we said we were going to talk about is watch your warrior fight for you. Watch this God who is a warrior fight for you. Uh, my friend Jeff Thompson, he's the RUF International Campus Minister here. He told a story one time that I remember. I don't know if he still goes to do this at Ramsey all the time, but he used to go work out every day in the weight room at Ramsey. One day he goes in. And he hears that guy. Uh, it's over in the free weight section by where the squat, squatting racks are and stuff. And, uh, you know, this guy's just like, oh, oh. And he's hearing the clang of weights on the ground. And so he goes over there and looks and other people are craning their necks around. And this guy has all the 45 plates on the bar. Like all of them. And it's like in the Olympic weightlifting competition where the bar is like bending and flexing. You're like, oh my gosh, that thing's going to break next time he goes up. 
And Jeff said he's watching this guy as a regular Ramsey worker outer uh, and stuff. And, and he's watching this and he said, just, just, his jaw drops. And a, and a little crowd is forming, just watching this guy. And he said that what he learned in that moment was this is one of those moments in life where what you're supposed to do is just be still and watch. You're not supposed to go up next to the squat rat next to him and throw on a few plates and start mimicking his form, you know? It was so amazing, such superior strength to all of those people. You shut up, you watch, and you be amazed. Of course, there's a few things you can glean from it. Of course, you can be like, okay, that's how he's holding the bar. Next time, don't go so far down on my knees. I might break them. You can, you can glean a few things of former technique from that. I'm not saying you can't do that. But in that moment, the natural response is sit there and watch. The natural response as you come across Judges 4, what Abigail read, is to sit down and watch. Because what you have just heard described, though it was half in Hebrew, <laughs> is unbelievable superior strength being unleashed in the lives of ordinary people like you and me in the ordinary affairs of their lives. I know it doesn't seem ordinary. We'll get there in a little bit. But just know right now, one of the takeaways from tonight is to sit and watch. Watch your warrior fight your battles and fight for you. Only then look at his technique, look at his form, or try to mimic or just use an example for anything. So let's track through just a few of the key details of this. We're not going to reread it all, but I just want to track through and pick up some of the highlights of this warrior at work fighting on behalf of his people. If you have been here the past few weeks, you know the cycle. Uh, God delivers his people and that and their obedience. They're, you know, they're, we're turning over a new page. Me and God are turning over a new page. Had a very short shelf life. That thing spoiled really fast. They eventually coast and drift back into wanting to do life their own way and confusing the maker of creation with creation. And they fall in love with the stuff instead of the maker. And they descend again into idolatry, into just social decay and disintegration. And that's what verse 1 catches us up to speed. Side note, sin is always boring. It's never new. It's always back to the same ball and chain. It's unimaginative. You know it and I know it. It's, falling all, it's always falling back into the same thing. We talked a couple of weeks ago of how idolatry is contagious. It's never this beautiful, brilliant unprecedented, original work of art, our idolatry, our patterns of abandoning God and worshiping other stuff. It's always borrowed. It's, whoa, look at what she has. Look at what he has. I think I'll worship that too. That, that looks like it's working out for them. I'm going to borrow it. It's never original. It's always boring. It's always unimaginative. It's always borrowed. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. This is the third time this has happened. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in that area. And so God disciplines them by handing them over to Jabin, who's the king of the land that God had given to his people. And now the king of Canaan is in charge of that land, not God's people. And this guy's chief general, his like chairman of the joint chiefs is a guy named Sisera. And the name Sisera back in that day would have made the hair on the back of your head stand up. He was 
brutal. He was cruel. He was inhuman in what he did to people. His reputation, we know from other places in Scripture, is particularly brutal with women. This man had a reputation for rape, raping his conquered, the wives of the conquered. Kill the men, rape the women. He was known as a womanizer. This was his trademark. It's like a serial killer has the thing they left behind. This is what Sisera did. This is how he operated. This is how he brutalized. This is how he showed people his superior power. Don't mess with me. And the text says he was doing this over Israel for 20 years. That's longer than a lot of you have lived. That's an entire lifetime for a lot of people in Israel. They don't know anything other than Sisera brutalizing their towns, their villages, their moms, their dads, themselves. And he's got an unmatched arsenal, 900 chariots. 900 anything is a lot of something, right? But 900 chariots reinforced with kind of with iron to keep arrows from going through and and protecting the, the driver of the chariot. 900 of those reinforced with this cutting edge, technologically advanced material, iron. That's his army, which is the modern day equivalent of like stealth aircraft and drones. Or cyber warfare. It's cutting edge. Nobody else has this equipment, but Sisera and Jabin do. And I want to say a side note real quick, especially if you're less familiar with the Bible and you're like, what's all this talk about God's enemies and and God in just a moment, we kind of continue on through the story, launching battle against his enemies. Does he still do this? Is it like you're on God's team? And if you're not, like if you're not on his team, he comes after you and, and kills you. You need to understand something about history. There was a time, we call it the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, where Israel was God's ethnic Israel. The nation of Israel, Israelites, were his people. And if you weren't an Israelite, you weren't his people. He was working through one particular nation in that time in history to bless the world, to bring blessing to the world, to bring thriving to the world. But he was working through Israel, not everybody. And so if you were aligned against Israel, if you were an enemy of Israel, guess who else? You're an enemy of Israel's God, Yahweh. And if being between a bear or a mother bear and her cub is the second most dangerous place to be, being between God and his people is the first most dangerous place to be. And I've just explained the entire Old Testament to you. Does he do this now? No. Uh, Does he judge his enemies? He will. But now what he is doing through his church is gathering his enemies and making them sons and daughters. Today is a day of salvation, not a day of warfare, not a day of judgment. Just so you know, that's why it's different than than now. Jesus, when he comes again, will come in judgment as a warrior, exacting vengeance and bringing justice and righting wrongs. And unfortunately for you and I, if you are not in Jesus by faith, you have participated in great wrongs like I have. You are a part of the problem in the world. There's blood on your hands. And that's why he calls us to himself. That was an aside just so we know what's going on. Continue with the story. Deborah. Deborah's a prophetess, which just means a prophet who's a lady. She's the woman that God had raised up to lead Israel, his people. So she's in charge of Israel during this period of time. She's like the governor, governor, whatever, uh, governor, governor. Yeah, she's the governor. She's like the queen. She's like the, the head person over all of, uh, uh, all of Israel. And she's known as an exceptionally wise person. Everybody would go to her 
to get counsel or settle disputes. She's also known as a pretty tender person. She's called in chapter 5 a mother to God's people. And this lady is fearless. She's fearless. She's like a Margaret Thatcher. She will stare down her enemies. And Barak is her main general. Barak is kind of her Sisera, like Jabin. So Deborah and Barak have this encounter that's really the bulk of of this story, and it leads to all the action in the story. In verse 6, Deborah calls Barak into her office, and uh, in this time she says, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, Barak, go and get soldiers at at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of these different tribes, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. She's like, Hadn't, didn't he have that conversation with you? And Barak responds to her. Um, and I don't know how long of a pause after. Who knows? Barak responds to her. If you will go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go, I won't go. Historically, Barak's gotten a bad rap from this. People say he's weak. People say he's weak-kneed. He's scared. People say this is an example of his lack of faith. He's kind of saying, well, I don't trust God, but Deborah's kind of his security blanket. If you go with me, I'll feel safe. And I think it's exact opposite of that, and so do a lot of theologians. This is not a, I don't think this is an example of faithlessness. I think this is an example of a man who knew a wise and brilliant and godly and strong woman when he saw one. And as he should have said, He said, she is on a short leash with the Lord, the God of Israel. She's on the same page with the Lord God of Israel, with the living God. God's hand is clearly on her. Why on earth would I not want her with me? That's the wisest thing this man ever did, ever did. As he says, Deborah, if you go with me, then I'll go. That's not faithlessness. That's actually wisdom. That's courage. Barak is not opposed to going. He's just opposed to going without the Lord's leader, Deborah. And so, um, Deborah prophecies right after that. She kind of looks around the corner of the future and she says, Well, Barak, you need to know that this is not going to be one of those glorious battles. You're not going to get medals pressed on your chest after this battle. And the reason why is the way that the Lord is going to deliver us out of this terrorist king, Sisera, is at the hands of a woman. which is jail, which we'll get back to in just a moment. But let's pause and talk about Deborah for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever had a coach or a leader or a pastor or a friend or family member who's been one of those kind of people that you said or you think, I'd follow that per- I'd follow him anywhere. You ever thought that? Or her? I'd go to war with that guy or that girl. Wherever they went, I, they could lead me off a cliff and I'd follow them. I'd go anywhere, I'd do anything, I'd charge any hill for them. That's Deborah. That's why Barack wants her to go with him. I know some people like that. I mean, when I was in your seat, um, Hal, who's the pastor here, he still is, uh, was one of those guys. Hal was so confident in the Lord that he, he, when you get to know him, he has plenty of fears. He has plenty of insecurities, but you don't see him from a distance because he is so confident that the Lord is for him 
that the Lord is active in this town, in this city, in this neighborhood, in this church. And so he's on mission. He goes out to battle. He charges hills. He takes risks and it's contagious and you want to be a part of it. And then you start noticing your spine stiffens and you start following people like that. And I know you might have people like that in your life. You'd go anywhere with them. And a lot of the most courageous things you've done in your life have been because you were following those people. And that's what Deborah is. That's what Barack is to an extent. Deborah says in verse 14, it's amazing to me. Um, you know, you could focus on Sisera, the size of his army, the number of chariots, what the chariots were reinforced with. You could talk about his military legacy. You could talk about what he might do to us if he captures us. You could talk about the brutality, the cruelty. And the more you talk about those things, it's like obsessing about anxieties. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're like, maybe we shouldn't do this. And there's not a hint of that in Barack and Deborah's pre-battle conversation. I think they are so obsessed, so singularly focused on their God who is a warrior who fights on behalf of his people, who hears their cries. They're so exclusively focused on him that they could hear any briefing they wanted to about all the stuff Sisera has. It's not going to affect them still going off in the battle. Deborah says in verse 14, she goes out to the troops right before the battle and she says, get up. Today's the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. I love it. She's already speaking past tense. Today is the day the Lord has given. This is a foregone conclusion. This is the day that the battle was won before the battle was even fought. Does the Lord not go out before you? This is her confidence. This is Barak's confidence as they look at this towering figure. This, uh, I don't know if you're thinking of David and Goliath right now, but I was earlier. This is the same thing that her little, not literal offspring, but the man who would one day occupy her role as leader of Israel. It's the same thing. David is this weak little man. There's nothing special about David that would make him a conqueror or one who is fit to face insurmountable odds. But David knows his God. David knows his warrior. David has seen him fight and he has internalized those stories. And so this is what David says when he stands up against a man, probably three or four feet taller than him in a little valley in Israel. First Samuel 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Dinky little shepherd boy says that to elite special forces, Goliath. You say, how is it hubris? Is it naivete? It's a man with a simple, humble knowledge of who his God is. He knows his God is a warrior. Deborah knows her God is a deliverer. Barak knows his God is a savior. And the most amazing thing happens when you believe that your feet can move. 
you can approach risk. You can approach danger, especially as it relates to God's mission, especially if it relates to his mission. Threats, obstacles, dangers that face you of befriending somebody beneath you in the social caste system of UGA. You can approach that danger because you know who your God is, that he has your back. You can break up with the boyfriend you should have broken up with three months ago because he's kind of a dirtbag. And the reason you can do it is because you know your God. You know he fights for you and you know he defends you. You know his love for you is secure. You can say that to your girlfriend that maybe it's not wise to be together given the place you're at in life right now. You can approach danger. You can take risk. Your feet can move instead of always retreating, always tucking tail and running, always saying, but but the chariots, but the iron, but the horses, but the brutality, maybe not today. Do you see how this calculus works? You get to know your God and your life will change. To the extent you don't know him, your life will be one long retreat away from risk, away from threat, away from danger. Those are the options that this passage confronts before us. We see the secret to this courage, in a sense, is an obsession with this God. So back to the story, back to jail. We left her behind, and this is the spicy part of the story. So Barak and his men, knowing who their God is, listening to this contagious commitment and confidence and courage and faith of Deborah, now charge down this shallow little hill into the Kishon Valley against Sisera and his army. Did you catch the math? The odd, uh, the, the tank to Israelite ratio is one to ten. I would never take those odds. There's, you know, one Nazi tank for every ten allied soldiers. No thanks. Let's come back another day where we got more tanks. Those are the odds. And because the Lord fights this battle for his people, uh, he gives uh, them into their hand uh, without... Uh, there's not a man left except one, Sisera, the head terrorist, escapes, and it looks like he lives to fight another day. But the Lord has established this weird little detail that seems like a throwaway waste of ink in verse 11. This odd little insertion of a detail, and you're like, this is the Bible, man. Why do you waste ink on that stuff? This random guy who moved. So what? Eber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, blah, 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 and he moves his tent. Big whoop. Who cares? Well, you flip your page and you find out why that's important because this man's wife was Jael, or Jael, and she was supposed to be, her tribe and sister's tribe were supposed to be allies. She should have been a friendly tent for him to go to. He's off his chariot. And the reason why you find out in chapter 5, how did Israel defeat all these chariots? Chapter 5 tells you this little one-line detail of how it happened. God sent a rainstorm a couple of miles up from where the battle was. And if you've ever lived in the desert, you know about flash floods. It can be sunny right here, and there can be a six-foot wall of water coming from over there from a storm that's miles away. So a flash flood comes. It floods the Kishon Valley, and chariots, believe it or not, don't move very well in mud. And so all the soldiers fall off. And they're vanquished. And Sisera has to abandon the pinnacle of his military force. And he crawls off the battlefield. He finds jail. And again, the English is mighty Puritan here. There's a lot of sexual innuendo going on here. 
turn aside to me, turn aside to me, come into my tent. I'll cover you with a rug. All of these things. What is likely happening, especially with a womanizing man like Sisera, is jail is setting a trap for him. She must have heard about his reputation somehow, some way. And she is bringing him into her tent. And the way that he gets tired is not just from fighting, but a lot of interesting activity happening between verse 18 and verse 19 that's left out of our account. So when Sisera is smoking his cigarette, lying down, falling asleep, mouth open, snoring, Jael grabs a tent peg and puts it right in his mouth and hammers it right into the ground. Which is a particularly humiliating way to die for a military hero like Sisera because in that day, women were the ones who were responsible for setting up the tents. That was woman's work. And so I don't mean to be stereotypical today, but it would be as if Sisera was murdered with a mop or a broom. It's a humiliating way to die. It is it just pushes this whole narrative right over the edge of how weak he is compared to the God of Israel. He is nothing. He's like Goliath. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will cut off your head. Friends, this is the Lord fighting his people's battle on their behalf, demonstrating to them his superior strength. And the point is to sit and watch. And the other point is to begin to follow him into these battles, and I know your battles are different. They're not geopolitical battles like Israel had. They're mostly internal, right? It's all the stuff we started the sermon talking about. Those battles. Do you think God has any interest in joining you in those fights? Or is he the CIA force five minutes up the road, ever so close he could help if he wanted to, but for some reason he's not? Or could he be responding even through details you're not even aware of, a rainstorm miles away, or a random dude that moved his little tent? That wasn't in the newspaper. Inconsequential detail that was used to deliver the death blow to Israel's enemy. Could it be that he's delivering you, that he's fighting for you in distant ways, in indirect ways that you're not even that aware of? We've talked about this before as we begin to wrap this up, but your potential, friends, as Paul Tripp says, is not located in you. It is located in your God. Your potential is not located in you. It's located in your God. If you locate your potential in you, it's what I said earlier. Your life will be one long retreat. If you begin to estimate what you are able to do by faith, by reliance in the Lord... By listening to his word and following him and entrusting him to show up. And you will find your life moving ahead. Where is the gospel in this passage? We've said many times the Bible is about Jesus, not about you and me. The Bible is a story about a hero, not the story about heroes to emulate. The Bible first must be witnessed from a chair, just seen and taken in. Before it is emulated. So where is the gospel in this? Well, Jesus. Jesus is. This deliverer that we've been talking about. He is this king. There's a catechism that has a question. It says, how does Jesus execute the office of a king? And the answer is by preserving and supporting us under all of our temptations and sufferings. And restraining and overcoming all of our enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his glory and our good. Some of us 
need to see Jesus as the warrior that he is and not just the weird, facile, gentle uncle that we see him as. Kind of always doing this weird, cross-stitched God talk. But see him as a warrior doing cosmic battle against things that you can't fight against. Ralph Davis said, salvation is more than a moving religious charade. It is an act of holy, vicious violence by which Christ wrenches his people out of the clammy clutches of the prince of darkness. I'll end with this from Liam Neeson and Taken. Jesus is not like Liam Neeson, but Liam Neeson is like Jesus in this regard. Someone has taken his daughter and he says, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. You can say it with me in your head, but what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. And I will find you. And I will kill you. How is Jesus like that? Your enemy, the enemy behind every enemy you have, is evil, is the devil, is darkness. It's this cosmic force. It is not a difficult battle for you and I. It's an impossible battle for you and I. Who does Jesus speak these words to? Not you, but to darkness, to death, to sickness, to sadness, to decay, to sin, to lies. And it's no mercy, no negotiation, because he is king. When you start seeing him fight for you, you will start fighting the battles that he is already engaging on your behalf. You will join him. But until you see him fight for you, he'll be the CIA that you call and you call and you call and he never answers. Consider these things tonight as you go home and think about this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us see you as a fighter and as a warrior one who loves your enemies and gave your life for your enemies, but one who will make no peace with our enemy, the devil, with our enemy death, with our enemy sickness, sadness, loss, disintegration, decay, sin, temptation. We thank you that you are unwilling to negotiate with our enemies, but you will vanquish them. I pray that the result of tonight, Holy Spirit, would be that our feet would start following you into battle, that we would resist sin, resist temptation, resist these habits, these addictive patterns by faith in you because we see you already neck deep in it, throwing blows on our behalf. We ask this in your name. Amen.